Gardening with edible plants, whether trees or annual plantings, is a growing part of today's complex food system. Doing it elegantly only increases the enjoyment. We learn about the elegant and edible garden from Linda Vader. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Linda Vader. She has spent her life becoming a gardener. She has written a beautiful, beautiful and inspiring book, The Elegant and Edible Garden, but she's also doing blogs, she makes videos, and we're really happy to have her here today. Welcome, Linda. Well, thank you. It's so so nice of you to invite me. I'm looking forward to it. So before we start talking about the book and some of the other things that you do, I really want to know how you started gardening and what was your first garden? Okay, well, probably my first garden was an indoor garden. And I have often said that houseplants were my gateway drug to gardening (laughs) because I just loved them. In high school, I started developing a hobby and a great fondness for growing houseplants. And I was of that era when we were growing, you know, spider plants and ferns and the 70s fern bar and, and all of that kind of thing. And I just loved it. And it happened to be at a period of time in my youth when we had just moved my family had just moved to a new location and I didn't have a lot of friends and so they were great company for me and I continued that passion all through my college years and my young single years and then when I finally I bought my own home and I kind of started dabbling in gardening then and then when I when I got married and and because of the nature of the work I was doing at that time I I quit and just started putting that energy into gardening. And it has been a wonderful pilgrimage ever since. Well, I love the fact that, and I'll use the word organically, but it kind of developed organically. Um, yes. And, and that you didn't go study horticulture. You just learned and read and made it happen. I yeah. love that. Yeah, and I think pretty much in all of my platforms, in my book and on my YouTube channel, just wherever I communicate with others, I really want them to know that gardening is accessible and you don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have even 30 years of gardening experience, which I now have. You just have to have a curiosity and be motivated and be and be, um, I think, interested in, in learning, not only about gardening itself as a horticultural enterprise, but also the fun of learning design and how it re- relates to the architecture of your home. And, and, and then finally, how it relates you and connects you to your community. Yes, I think the nature part of it is something really important because we 
can live in a kind of sterile environment that puts us away from nature. And so even if we're talking about lizards and earthworms and things like that, I mean, we really need those things in our environment. Oh yeah. I think it's just, I think it's an intrinsic part of life. And without it, my life would certainly be less fun, less interesting, less fulfilling. It's a wonderful creative spread too. So I love it. And I, I don't know that there's really anything else that you could do. There probably is, but I'm biased here. <laughs> that there's any other kind of hobby you can have that makes you feel like a child again. You know, I can I can see a seed germinate, and I've said it many times, but it awakens that inner, inner kindergartner in me every single time it happens. I, I am never less thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> on the thousandth time than I was on the very first time that that seed germinated at my behest. And that is just such a miraculous thing. So here at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, we have a camp that we do every summer. And one of the things that I used to love to do with the kids was if we, and part of part of camp is cooking your own lunch. Yeah. And so everyone sits down and has lunch, but often it involves carrots. And so every time we would have some kind of carrot dish, we, when we cut off the carrot tops, we would put them in a tray with water and the kids could, we would also make a little flag with the child's name on it so they could watch their carrot. And you could see every day that sprouting of the carrots in the water and they were always amazed by yeah. that simple thing. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's, it's exciting. And I think we've just enjoyed being able to introduce children to that. So that, well, and the fact um, that, that what can be perceived as trash turns into a treasure, you know, whether, whether it's a carrot top or, you know, the top of a scallion or a sweet potato bud or, you know, anything, the fact that you, you can turn it and, it, and again, it's the miracle of that miraculously transforms it up. And I think for children, they can see that progression in real time. It literally grows before their eyes. Right, right. That's true. That's true. So when you first started, what, what was it that you said about, and let's, let's say in your first home when, after you were married and um, are you still in the same home that you first were in when you when you got married? Well, I, I, I owned a small home before I got married. I, I like to say it looked like a mini Monticello to me. And so I, I, I loved it. And I started dabbling in garden, but I was, you know, a professional working full time and, right, and right. Didn't, have didn't have time. time. So when I got married, I, I just, I think I was ready to become domestic, if you will. And I, the, all of the energy that I had put into my house plants and everything then became, I think, channeled into outdoor gardening. And I live in a beautiful, very old neighborhood. My home was built in the 1930s. And yes, I am still in the same home 32 years later. Uh -huh. I raised my family here. It started my garden simultaneously. And I, I think I just, 
I think initially it was about beautification. I wanted to just beautify my surroundings mm -hmm. and maybe emulate some of my neighbors that had beautiful gardens and and slowly it just be it just possesses you. And it's it's so interesting to really become a student of gardening and a student of design and and I think it was wonderful when I realized how how intuitive so much of it was. So a lot of it is not it's you know it's not intimidating. So much of it is just intuitive if you break it down. And I've always been a huge uh, a voracious reader. So this so I just read a lot. And that was helpful. And, and, and I learned over time that a lot of what I was reading in no way pertained to Oklahoma where I garden. <laughs> but I, but I learned lots about design and a look that I wanted and a style I wanted to achieve, even if, if what I was seeing was more of an English garden, I nevertheless could figure out ways to transform it with an Oklahoma twang, if you will. <laughs> so how did you come to decide that edible plants and ornamental plants could could coexist? I think probably I talk this in my book. First and foremost, one of one of the most influential characters in my gardening life was Rosemary Berry, who has a spectacular garden in the Cotswolds at Barnsley House. And she is no longer with us, but I visited her garden and I was just, I was amazed at not only how beautiful it was, obviously, but it was very familiar to me because I had read so many of her books, but I didn't realize just how magnificently experiential it was until I visited it. It wasn't just a garden, it was a gardening experience from everything to, you know, the, the creak of the little wooden gate going into the potager to the fact that there was just, there were so many birds and it was humming and it was buzzing and there was life to it. And the part that really attracted me and compelled me most was, was the potager and how beautiful it was. And my favorite thing about gardening is when beauty um, meets utility and beautiful form and beauty meet function. And I was just completely mesmerized and captivated by the design of the potager itself, the tension between the architecture of the boxwood hedges, and then the beautiful blousiness of the vegetables that were in the little compartments and they were intrinsically beautiful. They, every bit as beautiful as any flower I had seen, every bit is texturally interesting. Uh, the shapes and the forms were every bit as interesting. And then on top of that, you know, hopefully you get to eat something wonderful from <laughs> it and harvest it and bring it in. So it became it became this whole concept of of a gardening lifestyle. It wasn't just a garden; it was a way. To... Are you there? Did we lose audio? Yeah, we lost audio there. You said you started to say it was a gardening lifestyle. So yes. do you want to 
Okay. Yeah, it was it, it was a gardening lifestyle. And I realized it wasn't just a garden. It was really a way to live a life and that it could inform every aspect of your life from the way you ate to, um, you know, how much exercise you got. It's easy to get in 10,000 steps when you're walking <laughs> back and forth to the compost pile. And, and it's, it's easy to and it's it's mental well-being. Being out in nature is imperative, especially now. And you just you know, we just have to figure out a way to do it because I think if we don't interact with nature and I'm not talking about you really have to have a relationship with your garden. It's mm -hmm. not just you have a pretty front yard and somebody else comes in and maintains it and all of that. Not that there's not merit to that, but to me, the real value lies in the relationship that you have with a garden, how you see it change over time, how it becomes a metaphor to life, how you realize just how important it is to your physical well-being, your mental well-being, the cycle of life. And I know that if I don't get outside every single day, and today in Oklahoma, it's supposed to get again to 106. Oh my goodness. So if that means I have to get up at 4.30 or 5 to get out there and enjoy it and get my walking in and get my watering in and tending the garden, then I'm, I'm willing to do it because my spirit needs it and, and my mood needs it, it because I can get pretty grumpy <laughs> if, I if I don't get outside in the garden for a while. Well, so if somebody is starting their garden and let's say they move into a house that has sort of garden beds along the fence or something like that. What do you recommend that they do in order to get going? Get going. Well, first of all, I would say just stop and take a deep breath and kind of have a plan. And the plan is informed by the expression, eat that elephant one bite at a time. <laughs> You just, you're not going to have the garden of your dreams overnight, especially if you are a newbie gardener. And so what I always think of is, and what I did with my own home is I have what I think of as my own, my garden theory of relativity. And every one thing in the garden relates to every other thing in the garden. Okay, so which part of your garden, and if you just moved into a new house, so which part of your garden or your outdoor living spaces are you going to be reacting with and interfacing with the most? So it might be, it might be the flower bed closest to your house. It might be the pots on your deck. It might be um, a little shady bed underneath a tree that's right where you like to sit in the evening. And so you prioritize that and you say, okay, this is where I'm going to start. And I'm going to learn about this type of gardening, whether it's container gardening or shade gardening or a little vegetable four by four square that you have herb garden growing right by where you want it. And, and you say, OK, I'm just going to start here. You just start someplace and you learn about that and you read about it and you are you are observant about it. You look at your neighbor's gardens and you see what works in the same in the same aspect, in the same micro environment. And you amend the soil and you you learn about gardening in that little microcosm. And then once you get that under control 
and you kind of have some confidence under your belt, then you move on to the next thing. And that might be moving down the flower bed or it might mean adding to the flower bed, or it might be adding a few more pots to your apartment patio. It, it just, you, you get, and then you, of course, you are learning at every, you know, at, at every point you are learning. And sometimes what, I, what I've often said that I try to do is I knew nothing when I started. And when I started, as you can relate to Liz, you know, we could read books, we could do things, but we didn't have this whole internet the web literally at our fingertips so every time you have you know a question you can say oh why is my pepper dying or whatever you can now literally in the moment you can google that or you don't know what plant something is you can take an app and snapshot it and you can find out exactly it is the kind of situation it want to grow in, what its lighting requirements are, its moisture requirements are, all of those kinds of things. So there's really no, no excuse now, you know, not to, but you just start somewhere and then you observe and you make mistakes and you kill a bunch of plants. And, <laughs> but you have one, one little success, one little green bean, one little cherry tomato, <laughs> and it hooks you. Right. It, it, it hooks you. And you can't resist. So one of the things that um, I love about the book, besides the absolutely stunning photographs, I mean, the pictures of your garden are so wonderful and, and the other gardens that you that you reference. Um, I love um, on your YouTube um, channel, all of the things you give as like, oh, here's a tip, here's a tip. And when you talk about going to thrift stores and garage sales um, and all the kinds of things you're looking for, how did that develop, that, that sense of your style? Of my style? Well, I think part of it is informed by how I grew up. Um, I am one of 10 children and I, we, we, I was very fortunate, you know, we, we, my father made a good living, but we were always very thrifty. And I put myself through college later and I was a poor struggling college student for years. And I just realized that again, it relates to that accessibility thing that I was talking about. Good style, good taste is accessible really to everyone. I mean, you can go, I can go to Goodwill. Well, the dress I have on right now, I got at Goodwill. Um, so you don't have to spend a lot of money, but you do have to be resourceful. And I think that one, it just went hand in hand with being, with creating, a, it, a part of it's the creative enterprise of it, looking to see something and see how it can be transformed into something else. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love the And my channel is also about reusing, recycling, repurposing things. And it animates me. And I think it's smart. And I am not at all embarrassed to tell you that I got this dress at Goodwill. (laughs) So I think that, you know, I I would see something high end and I think, oh, well, I could, 
there's a replacement I could use for that. I know something that I could use in place of that that would give me the same look without the same expense. Mm -hmm. um, I can have certain certain perennials in my garden if I'm not afraid to ask a friend for a start. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just, and it's part of sharing and it's part of the creative process. I can't say that there's any, it just evolved. As you said, it evolved organically. There wasn't ever... And then a lot of it is from feedback from my followers who would say, oh, I like this too. Or I, you know, none of us live in a vacuum. Yeah. And it became an exchange of information between my followers and myself. And it became, a, it's an overused word, but it really became very rely on one another to keep our spirits up when it's 106 degrees outside and and just really great great tips that that what I try to do is flatten the learning curve is I knew nothing when I first started and if I had had somebody who could have flattened the curve for me I could have been a lot more efficient and so I that's what I try to help people with one of the tips that you talked about was baskets that you fill with dirt and plant and um I love the idea that part of the garden is, and I, I know that you aren't hoping that it deteriorates right away, but that, that deterioration, that slow deterioration is part of nature. And yeah. a basket is made of nature to begin with. And then to just watch it change in that part of, of the gardening cycle, I think is really an exciting idea. I like that a lot. Well, and I love that because it's it's just the intrinsic beauty of, of even decay. Mm -hmm. I mean, can be mm -hmm. beautiful of a rose that's past its prime. Um, I'm, a, I'm a terrific forager and I can be completely um, smitten with different kinds of acorns and a beautiful branch or something that which, which to me is every bit as beautiful as some kind of artwork that I could spend a lot of money at at a gallery. And I can bring that inside my home. I can dig up little evergreens and use them at Christmas time. I can decorate my house with them. I think there's just something eminently charming about shopping your own garden and finding the beauty in a weed or finding the, you know, the beauty in decay or, or just the beauty of nature. And when you do get a plant from someone else, you think about them every time you yes. see it, which is lovely. Yes. Yeah. I, it's, it becomes a touch point mm -hmm. that um, is just so special and it reminds you of that person, even if that person has passed on, it can still remind you of them. It's a wonderful legacy. Right. And so how did you develop your design sense? Did you do a lot of reading about design or look at photographs of other gardens? How did, how did that develop? Probably that developed initially. Well, what every every one life experience that you have kind of informs every other life experience. And I think that it is basically the combination of all of my different life experiences that brought me to where I am today, to being on camera, to writing all of the different jobs and life experiences. And one of my jobs when I was uh, was I worked 
retail shop and I did lots of the displays. I did lots of the display design. Okay, we, that, I, I lost you. I lost your video for a moment. You said okay. I worked at, and then I lost you. Okay. I worked at um, a gift shop and I would do lots of the displays. Oh. Excuse me, just a minute. Um, I did lots of the displays and that gave me a sense of composition and balance and what worked and what didn't work. And I think that was very helpful to me then when I began to do things even on the outside is mm -hmm. that that sense of balance and proportion and scale and composition that you get. But but then I think on to that, it was a lot of reading and a lot of, of copying, just a lot of, I would find see a vignette. This is a great tip. If I saw a vignette, particularly one that looked similar to a space that I had in my own garden, and I liked that, then I would tear that, that page out of the magazine or I would take a photograph and I could then just replicate in some way, sometimes with thrift items, I could replicate <laughs> that vignette mm -hmm. based on something that I had seen and then I could recognize and deconstruct that mm -hmm. and I think I think a good designer is a good deconstructionist and I talk a lot about that in the book and asking certain questions but I did learn basic just I read books on design books on garden design and then it becomes you don't have to read anymore because it becomes absolutely intuitive and you find yourself on garden tours looking for those things mm -hmm. and deconstructing those landscapes and say, oh, what a marvelous focal point mm -hmm. or what a wonderful way to frame the view. And then it just becomes intuitive and you don't have to be a student anymore because it becomes part of, of your knowledge base. One other thing that I think is really important about gardening is it you can't rush it. The plant takes however long it takes to grow from a, a seed or to develop or to flower or whatever. You can really not make it less time consuming than it is. And so that patience that develops where this becomes just part of the life cycle of your garden and, and not an instant thing, I think is a wonderful way to sort of be part of the world. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I get a little bit discouraged when I see some of these makeover shows on TV and they give the impression that a garden can be created overnight. Mm -hmm. and, a, and a garden really cannot be created overnight. You can create a patio, you know, or you can create an outdoor living area, but you can't create a garden overnight. And a friend of mine that I have known for years, probably one of the best gardeners I know, one of the most accomplished people I know in general, um, I think of her as a garden sage. And she, she said that we may be in charge, but we're not in control. And I loved that. Uh -huh. I love that. I may be in charge of my garden, but I am not in control of the weather, of the rainfall, of how fast or slowly something wants to grow. The and squirrels. I, <laughs> my nemesis. Yeah, I mean, it's, isn't it true though, Liz? Isn't it true? Yes. It's definitely, definitely true. <laughs> and, um, I, but there's something 
really calming about that, I think, that you you can't rush it. You can't say, I'm going to hurry up and make it happen because you just can't. So you have to give it up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's humbling. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is. um, But it's, it's like I say, it's a great metaphor for life. Because there's just, sometimes there is just nothing you can do about it. And there is release in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. When you acknowledge, I cannot do anything about this 106 degree weather that we're going to have for days on end. I can, I can put a shade tarp over this, or I can do over that. But at a certain point, it's outside of my control. And there's going to be things that are going to die. And there's going to be things that don't flourish. And I have to be content with that. And I have to pull up my big girl panties (laughs) and just (laughs) accept it and go back out in the garden again, because it's what we do. So I want to ask you about the book. How, you know, when did you say, oh, I need to, I need to write this. I mean, I, I love, I love the title. I think the book is organized in an intelligent way that kind of introduces you and then gives you the different ways to think about your garden, you know, whether it's design or planting or um, living in the garden or whatever the various chapters cover. But some of it deals with things like hardscape that you might not be able to do yourself or structures and things like that. How, how did that come about and how, how should people think about that part of their gardens? Because that could be an investment. It could be an investment. And, and, but again, it doesn't have to be, and you don't have to do it all at once. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. some of mine came in stages. Some of it came, a lot of it came from observation. So a, a good example of that is when we first moved in, we did what you do when you're young and you have small children and they play outside. You built a deck. Uh-huh. We, we built a deck on the back of our house. Mm-hmm. And it was a redwood deck and it was nice, but it was expensive to do, even more expensive now to put a deck on the back of your house. And we had it for years. And over time, it a good period of time, but over time, it had to be removed. I mean, there was just too many splinters and things like that. And in the meantime, I had done so much reading that I realized that it really didn't match the style of my home anyway. Mm-hmm. And I had started looking at alternatives. And I think sometimes we have to look at it that way. Okay, if I, if I want this, but I can't have it either because of the expense or I don't have the knowledge base or I don't have the room or whatever our limitations are, I think a lot of it is self-awareness and you recognize your limitations mm-hmm. um, or I'm too old to do this. I, I can't maintain all of this anymore. So a lot of it is, is what constitutes good garden fit. And I talk about how you can determine what is good garden fit for you at your age with your living situation. Do you have a family? Are you retired? How much time do you have? Do you have a large or a small budget? And then you let that inform what you do next. So for me, I didn't want the expense nor the look or the aesthetic of replacing that deck. 
-hmm. But I did like the look of flagstone and gravel and I had seen it in books and I had seen it on garden tours and I thought that's what I want that matches my English Tudor style house. It's less expensive. I can do this section now I can add on to it later mm -hmm. and I just do it again it's eating that elephant one bite at a time mm -hmm. you do what you can at that point in time recognizing the constraints within which you garden or which you work mm -hmm. and I think that's I think that's important and there again there's so much information on the web you can do lots of research beforehand mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Linda, I want to thank you so much, not only for your time today, but thank you for writing this absolutely wow. fabulous book, The Elegant and Edible Garden. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. Take care and stay cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.